This morning, if you would, take your Bibles now and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to begin reading in verse number 5. I'll read a portion of this passage through verse 11. If you would follow with me. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him or by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Shall we pray once again together? Father, I'm blessed. So blessed, Lord. Thank you that through Christ's merits, we have been made beneficiaries of so much. And I'm so grateful for this occasion to be able to come and share Who am I, Father? Who am I, Lord? I've got outlines and manuscripts. God, I would pray that you would take the content of what we'll look at for the next few moments, that you would breathe on it, that you would quicken it to our hearts, that it would engender conviction, not that which is a result of beholding our face in a glass and then we turn and walk away and forget what manner of men and women we are. But conviction, Lord, that will make a difference. This might in our own spiritual pilgrimage be a defining moment. Change us, O Father. Make us increasingly like Your Son. How we're encouraged to know And if we take the initiative to discipline ourselves unto godliness by beholding Christ in the Scripture, we're changed from one degree of glory, even as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord. Oh God, please help us. Change us, I pray. We look to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. When we look at something that perhaps has a tad of controversy to it, uh, people talk about how that they are the object of God's loving correction, 
And yet when they attempt to delineate it from an experiential point of view, oftentimes they stutter and stammer, and they have no real grasp or concept of just how that works out in the way of practical implication. But I don't have all the answers, brethren, but there are some very interesting things in our text this morning that invoke our thought, and I trust will produce conviction in us to walk differently before our Lord. <clears throat> we come to this text that showcases the great love of Christ for His people. Perhaps it's not the most popular aspect of God's love, the way He works this out in the lives of His children. After all, we don't like to think about discipline and correction. But we should never view God's discipline as negative. I think it was one of the Puritans who said, there is no man so near to hell as he whom God does not chastise. So God is a loving Father. His loving overtures are revealed in many times unsettling, discomforting situations where we're the object of His love in the way of correction. This is a token of God's infinite kindness. You see, the text before us this morning shows us how the Lord cares for us. For it is by His correction that our spiritual adoption is confirmed and our perseverance in the faith cultivated. Think about this. We will never know how indebted, indebted we are to His love until glorification. Imagine how perilous it would be if we were not kept on the narrow way by His affectionate discipline. You have no idea how much He cares for you. You have no idea. The testimony of many modern saints is life is difficult. It is for everyone. It, it, it's it's going to get a lot worse at times. We see it in the Scripture, do we not? Interestingly, the Bible seems to confirm this perspective. After all, Jesus says offenses are going to come. Job said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And even Paul and Barnabas attested to the reality of this season of discomforting providence. In Acts 14, verse 22, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. But you will note in our text here a promise that is made to all His saints the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Now, we see that there are four ways that professing Christians can respond to God's discipline. They're not to be looked upon with indifference. First of all, in verse 5, sometimes we respond with forgetfulness. They don't run their course before our mind, before our contemplation. And so we kind of 
get easily distracted and we forget. Sometimes it's through contempt. We, we look upon these things lightly. Sometimes it may be weariness, also found in verse number 5. But the admirable pursuit and the admirable response is to endure. Endure. Verse 7. You see, the first three of these are negative, while the last is positive. It's interesting, brethren, the general purpose for the book of Hebrews was to warn the Jewish professors of the Christian faith not to return to the practices that their religion, of their religion for salvation. By responding adversely to God's trials, it could cost them their soul. Likewise, when any professing Christian in our day responds negatively to trials, he puts himself or herself at great risk. This is a solemn text in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. The writer warns of such a response when he says, speaking on the behalf of God, but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, if that person shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is unbelievable. To be the object of God's contempt and for God to make that pronouncement upon any person who is perhaps the most sincere professor, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Unbelievable. But we are not of those, the writer includes himself, who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, or excuse me, preserve their souls. Now, it's interesting that the expression shrink back in the ESV represents an adverse response. It means simply to cower from or to neglect. Remember Paul said there in, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation? No, if we neglect so great a salvation. Don't neglect your time with Christ. Some of us are absorbed with ministry to the neglect of our time with Christ. Guard yourself against the barrenness of busyness. But once again, this is another ploy of the devil is to get us so overextended in good things, noble things, to the neglect of our soul that could be ultimately eternally costly. So there are many who profess but don't possess. Consequently, they forget the exhortation of discipline. And sometimes they are indifferent toward it and sometimes they are wearied by it. They shrink back as to remain in a state of neglect, and consequently they imperil their soul. Remaining in any of these conditions, now listen to this, 
Remaining in any of these conditions proves that their faith is not real, it's not legit, and will ultimately lead to a falling away or an apostatizing from the gospel. This is seen in the warning once again in Hebrews 2, verse 3. There's something to be said, brethren, about continuing in the gospel. As much as we love theology, as much as we love truth, as much as we love our Bibles, and we well should love them, many times even these good and sacred things can become a distraction in our relishing, in our contemplating, in our internalization of the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 too, speaking of the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word unless you have believed in vain. Now, this is what I'm doing with my grandchildren right now to see them come to Christ. I have eight grandchildren, three of them are adopted they range from three to nine years of age, and every opportunity I have, whether we're playing together, we're, we're just wrestling with each other, we're going out to get ice cream, I'm taking them to the park, sometimes it's a disciplinary situation, no matter what comes up, I'm using every opportunity to pour the gospel into them. I despise moralism. So why do you have that disposition, Graham? Why are you so frustrated, Phoebe? One grandson's named Spurgeon. Why Spurgeon? You've got an angry spirit. I said, you understand that is a sin that Christ died for. It's a sin that nailed him to the cross. And now I'm beginning to get feedback from them. They're thinking gospel. God did not ordain homeschool or moralism as the power of God into salvation. He ordained the gospel. You pour the gospel into your children and your grandchildren. From this text, brothers and sisters, I want to highlight that truth that validates saving faith, that truth that centers on God's discipline for His children. So I direct your attention to verse 6 that says once again, for the Lord, this is so soothing, it is so comforting that the Lord disciplines the one He loves. It's a good thing to be troubled by God. It's a very good thing. So here are some things that I want you to consider with me in light of divine correction. First of all, remember, God's love is not conditioned by our walk. In other words, if we're performing well spiritually, it doesn't merit God's love. His love is fixed. Doesn't vacillate, doesn't waver. It's not determined by how well I'm performing spiritually, how well I sustain my endurance on the spiritual 
treadmill of performance. His love is fixed. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens every son whom he receives. The Father's love is unconditional. It does not fluctuate based on our obedience or disobedience. Once again, as I understand the text, brothers and sisters, his affection does not waver on the basis of our performance. Therefore, his discipline is always administered with a non-abating nature. Think about this. This is a powerful impetus for overcoming fear and unbelief and depression in our life is that his love is not unstable. The great incentive toward Christ's likeness I found this. I, I could write a book on this because I thought for years it's how well I disciplined myself. It's how well I cared for my soul. It all depended on me. But real Christ's likeness is contingent upon getting a good dose of his love. It's what Spurgeon said. We have got to learn, no matter who you are, whether you're a vocational minister or you're a mom or you're a layman or whoever, you're a young man, you've got to learn to contemplate, plumb the depths of Calvary. You must do it because in so doing, suddenly you're overwhelmed by a love that will not let you go. Think about this for a moment. It is not Him, but us who are responsible for a diminishing sense of His love. You might know that theologically. You might know that as far as the biblical concept is concerned. But friend, once again, I come back, as I mentioned in the early hour, this experiential aspect dimension of walking with God. You have no idea what's available to you. I asked Paul Washer, I said, Paul, talk to me for a minute about Romans 5. You read it in the lives of so many Christians in church history where there was these outpourings of love, whether it was in the context of a mighty spiritual awakening or maybe it was just directed toward one individual. I said, I've experienced this this one time just a few days after my conversion. It's like Christ drew near. His glory was so manifested. His presence was so pervasive. And it was manifested in this outpouring of love. I said, why is it I'm not experiencing that regularly? You know what his answer was? Don, maybe you've become too civilized. That's the danger in the reform movement. All cerebral. And then he said this to me. He said, he always comes. but we're too easily satisfied. We don't tarry. We don't continue to pursue and stay the course. Don't deny that that manifestation of God's love being poured out is a sovereign work of God. But as Lloyd-Jones said, we can ask for it. And we should be longing for it and expecting it. It comes as a result of craving. 
Here's the second thing I want you to see about this love is God's love motivates us to endure. Verse 7, look at this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. King James Version said, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. My wife, typical teenager, unregenerate, but there was enough semblance of conviction morally in my wife that she did not make ultimate compromises in a home that was no friend to grace. She had a lovely mother, but her dad, without dishonoring him at all, he was a tyrant and very controlling and very harsh at times. Controlled the family with anger, with tirades. But Cindy told me, she said, you know, when I would go out with friends and they were living for the world, these friends, they were fixated on the spirit of the world. She said, honey, what really preserved me was not the threats of my father. It was knowing how much my mother loved me and how disappointed she would be if I failed, if I compromised. That's the great incentive, brothers and sisters. It's the motivation in our lives as the children of God. It's not people manipulating us through preaching or manipulating us by employing these coercive or manipulative plans to get us to walk straight. It's not you getting angry with your children in the home that will motivate them to persevere alone with God. It's they know that if I sin, I'm going to grieve the heart of my loving father, my loving mother. Dr. Frank Sales was a professor at Columbia Bible College. My understanding is a very godly man, full of wisdom. A friend of mine, Glenn, who was a pastor of a church in North Carolina, they would go every month down to Columbia and take Frank out to lunch and just sit around the table and pick his brain. And one day Glenn asked him the question and said, Dr. Frank, I just want to ask you a question. He said, will you ever... Were you ever tempted to run off with that wild, hilarious crowd of the world and get in trouble? And Dr. Sales looked at him and said, No, Brother Glenn, I never was. I had so much fun with my father, I never was tempted. I had so much fun with my daddy. Don't miss the point. Meditating upon the objectives of God's love behind discipline stokes desire to change. The tokens of His love in the text here motivate us to please Him. Note some of the evidences of God's love in this passage. First of all, the word discipline itself in verse 6. You know what it means? It carries with it the implication here, the connotation to watch over and to care for. He does care for you. He didn't save you to leave you to yourself. Something we really feel at heart cry these days when we pray, our, one of our preeminent petitions is, oh God, save us from us. And we feel like that that is right in tune with the character of our God, particularly His love toward us. It is interesting, secondly, 
There is the word receives, which denotes his love in verse 6 also. This encompasses, now listen to this, it encompasses, brothers and sisters, a longing to delight in. He receives us, a longing, because he longs to delight in us. Only a God that loves you could long to delight in you. Furthermore, another token of his love is found in the word good in verse 10. Other translations, you'll notice, use the word profit. But once again, the word carries with it the idea, how about this, of affectionate care or affectionate affirmation. He loves you. He cares for you. And then finally, something else about this love is you see the Father's tender care in the fruit it produces. The writer uses the expression, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And you will notice that it does not say work of righteousness, indicating something repeated from our own self-initiative and self-effort. Fruit is the outcome of the Father's loving nurture as pictured in John 15, 2, when Jesus said, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It's a product of enduring. <laughs> the word endure, it means endure. So think about this. I love the words of Arthur Pink. They're so timely in regard to this portion of the message. He said, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from an empty professor. Did you catch it? Absorb the thought. It is not the absence of sin. We sin all. We fail. It doesn't give me a license to sin because I fail so miserably so often. But in sinning there, as Pink says, the grieving over it, that's a distinguishing mark of the child of God from an empty professor. That gives me hope. Thirdly, God's love profits for the partaking of His holiness. God's love profits for the partaking of His holiness. Back in verse 10, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Now this is important. Listen. The very words here, men and women, but He disciplines us for our good denotes a perpetual, ever-flowing love toward us. It motivates us to endure. This is my incentive, to endure temptation, endure things that are trappings to my soul, things that would tend to lead me into a spiraling down in spiritual declensions that would culminate in apostasy, is the fact that He loves. It motivates us to endure, share in His holiness, and yield the fruit of righteousness. Now listen, often God is portrayed in preaching or parenting as an abusive authority. This very portrayal, are you with me? 
sucks the life out of any child of God to walk uprightly. To give the impression that God is a strict father just waiting for his children to step out of line will discourage them. I love the words, if I could just draw from Ted Tripp for a moment, who wrote Shepherding a Child's Heart. This applies to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He said, rules without relationship equals rebellion. So you impose all these rules and all these restrictions and parameters on your kids. And I'm not saying they're all wrong, friend, but if that's all there is in your relationship with your kids, you'll frustrate them and it will lead to rebellion. This may be the very reason why so many believers in this modern era are so unfaithful in their walk with God. They view God as a tyrant or a harsh taskmaster who carries a rod of severity just waiting for them to commit the slightest infraction. What I found personally is getting a good dose of baptism of God's love in secret prayer and communion with Him, these infusions of that revelation and that grace in my life is the greatest deterrent to my sinning against Him. Number four, another thought. Please remember that God's love may be severe, but it's not punitive. Now, what do you mean by that? In verse number 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. The moment you're going through it, I don't know what is the nature of it. it it's very discomforting. Miserably so. But he says it seems painful. Think about this for a moment. God's correction is administered to transform us. Its purpose is never intended to punish His children or make them pay for their sins. Are you with me? Now watch. And while some methods of discipline are harder and more difficult to endure than others, we should never think, brothers and sisters, that the severity of the correction is because God demands payment. He doesn't. All been paid for in Christ. Hmm. This is rich. Listen. Christ's propitiation is sufficient for the Father. It is surely sufficient for me. It is surely sufficient for me. If the blood of Christ is sufficient for God, it is surely sufficient for me. <laughs> Christ's propitiation is sufficient. Therefore, He does not demand any self-inflicted punishment to atone for them. There were saints in Scripture that were disciplined severely, but it was not an end in itself. Moses forfeited his ministry when he misrepresented God before the people. Because you believe me not to sanctify me before the children of Israel, you shall not bring this people into the land which I have promised them. 
But he was permitted to see the land before he died. David incurred a prolonged season of pain as he witnessed the deaths of four of his sons, but he was restored to God's favor. Samson suffered the loss of his strength, his sight, and a sense of God's presence, but his name is recorded in the Hall of Faith. In every example of discipline in the Bible, God's love never wavers. This is profound. God's not after retribution when He applies correction to your life. He's after restoration. There's a big difference. Delights in restoring you and I. So here's the conclusion this morning. We must not think of correction as a display of God's anger. When the Father chastens, He doesn't do it out of frustration. His intention, listen, is never to exasperate, but to confirm our sonship. What He's saying in it is, he or she is mine. Mine. Don't miss it. You're mine. He invokes, listen, soul-preserving endurance. He does it. Enables us to share in His holiness and seeks to produce this peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. So to comprehend the love of God and discipline will afford a refuge for perplexed saints. You're perplexed this morning. You're anxious about something. You've taken it on the chin by the devil this past week. You're the object of someone's contempt. No matter what you're going through, friend, God's using that for good that you might ultimately become a partaker of His holiness. And how you respond to it matters so, so very much. This is encouraging. It is a glorious thing when God puts His love on display. Now, are you tracking with me? Don't miss this. And that is exactly what He does when He disciplines His children. The words in verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves are worth their weight in gold. How so? For it's in a promise that promotes endurance to the ultimate saving of our soul. So can I give you one more thing that's just pregnated with, with blessing and reality? Love this. Here's a thought that came as I prepared this message. So grateful to Father. God's loving discipline may be severe, but it's not punitive. Now listen. Rejoice, saints, that the chastisement of your peace was laid upon Him once and for all and not daily required of you. That gives me great rest. I don't have to be perfect. 
That's my desire is to be perfect as my Father's perfect. But even when I fail miserably, He loves me with an unbelievable love. And He does you. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, for this great privilege, such a privilege, Lord, to come before your people. God, I pray that these little things that have been shared, Lord, may they be overtures of mercy to remind your people of your great love for them. Father, we say with the Apostle Paul with an exclamation point, who shall separate us from the love of God? No entity in this world or the world to come shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Lord, may this not be a, a false comfort or false hope that we just fall back on and say, well, I blew it again. And then it just leads to us sinning continually, sinning with pleasure. Lord, sober us up in such a way to give us such a revelation of your love that it would be a mighty impetus not to sin against our spiritual daddy that loves us so dearly. Please, Father, put that conviction in our heart to walk before you in the fear of the Lord, in such reverence before you, and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.